I hire a team of people that I love. And mm. then we together make, you know, have this sort of like creative family and create, I mean, that's part of what I love about making movies and TV. Jeez, it's like all fucking teamwork. Hello and welcome back. This is The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. Every week I sit down with a woman who truly inspires me and we talk about the stuff that is really important to us um, and hopefully you too. Last week I talked to the badass comedian Amanda Seals at her home in LA about how if you're a woman and you're called ambitious, that is still considered an offensive word and how just taking some time for yourself is perfectly okay and you should do it if you feel like you need it. This week I'm talking to Lake Bell about why she wasn't a fan of marriage for most of her life, how she recovered and healed from a very traumatic birth experience and I think her story is something that is very brave to share and I hope will be helpful to any other women who have had a similar experience. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I had a fantasy that I would somehow go to New York today. Yes. And just have this weekend there and do some fashion week stuff and stay in a nice hotel. Gorgeous. And have some good, nice sheets that weren't my own ones with have kids in them and bits of food and so many crumbs. You know, just nastiness. But then I realized this morning when my nanny came in, she said, So are you going to New York? I was like, No, I guess I'm not. But I, I play these games of like, oh, I, I could go you be could. that person. Oh, you could. Right. Yes, absolutely. But you, I actually cannot. No. It, but you need to be in the fantasy. You have to be believe it. Right? <laughs> Otherwise, the fantasy doesn't work. It doesn't. But sometimes I do that. I'm very responsible with my fantasies. And sometimes I think about things that are really extraordinary, whether it's like illicit. Right. Or like just kind of like fun. And and even in my fantasy, I'm curbing it where I'm like, but Come on, that's not, not realistic. Kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so that's interesting. What does that say? <laughs> well, that you are you are firmly in your reality yes. and you're present for your life. And do you fantasize about things and then feel guilty about them, or within the fantasy feel guilty about them? Um, I don't even allow myself to really do that to 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 sort of visualize things no. that are wrong or illicit. I mean, well, you know, look. I how long are you married for? Well, I've only been married for like six years. We've been together eight years. I've been married for 15 years and been with my husband for 18 years. And I was thinking about this the other day about how, you know, even if I was like a cheater, which I'm not, Mm -mm. but even if I was, I don't think I've met anyone that I've wanted to have sex with. Sure. For for so long. (laughs) It's not even a frame of reference for me anymore. Like, it's right. gone. Oh, interesting. You know, it's gone. It's like, oh, no, it, it doesn't even cross my mind. Whereas I used to, pretty much on a daily basis, be like, 
hmm, could I, could I be naked that? with that dude? Right. You know, like, I don't even think about that anymore. So you're saying earlier in the marriage when you still felt yes. like you would allow your 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 brain to, perc- you know, sort yes. of tingle in totally. that way. Totally. And to my to vagina keep- to tingle yes, in that way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, just to keep it, yes. like, alive exactly. a little bit. Yes, interesting. Okay, and then eventually you're like, yeah, fuck it. Like, yeah, I'm not gonna- I think, like, that kind of sex energy is is a wonderful energy, and it's it can be electrifying. It gives you a lot of um, intention and, you know, amazing uh, focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, But I think creative energy and sexual energy are the same thing in many ways. Uh, yeah. Right? And so for me, I've definitely... They're, they're linked. But I think that once I really realized, oh, I'm I'm in for the long haul with this dude, um, that energy just went into, the, into creativity. Right. And it's really interesting because I did, I remember I went to drama school and there was this one kid, everyone was like, oh my God, he's... He wasn't hot. He was in our he was in our uh, school, and he was extraordinary. He was like the most amazing actor ever. No, he just won't engage in any sexual um, expression energy. or energy because he wants to pool it all into his acting. Wow. Now, I don't know where this guy went. Yeah, I was going to say, what you, happened? Is it like Brad Pitt or someone? No, it's not. <laughs> um, and I'm sure he's doing very well, you know, somewhere. But the point is, like, he was incredible. Like, he just wielded an energy that was profound because it well, wasn't like he was not going to get any. Like, right, there was offers right, on the table. Right. It but, was a choice. But the, the thing is, is that when you, when you are withholding sexual energy and you don't disperse it, mm. then it it stays within you and it and it is very contagious, right? And people are drawn to it. And I think, you know, certainly for me as a mother of three children, and I don't know whether you've found this shift that it's really important to stay connected to that piece of yourself when you, the majority of your life, and I would say like 90% of my life, is about problem-solving tantrums and working out what to feed everybody and how do I get the playdate person here and pick that one up from there. And you're just in like problem-solving mode and the last thing you're thinking about is your vagina. No, I mean, I know, it's all right? logistics. Yes. It's all logistics, no vagina. Yeah. Yes, and so, you know, I don't know if you do this, but... It's so important within a, in a marriage to have time where you're not being just parents because you forget, oh, who who am I in relation to this man as a man and a woman in, a, in an intimate relationship as opposed to like parents trying to get shit done? Well, I, it's so funny you say that because literally Scott and I talk about all the time and it's it's like I don't have the answer necessarily other than, hey, want to have one date night per week? And by the way, anybody who has, who's married with kids is kind of like, that's a lot. Oh, yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Once a week? At 6 p.m. as well. What, are you mad? Like, who's going <laughs> to, you're going to electively go out, like, when you have a four and a two-year-old? Like, no. I'm Mine sorry. are 12 and it's Sleep. still like that. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Don't tell me that. I, I mean, I'm sorry. That's. But the thing is, is that to be... A mindful parent, to be a present parent, that is what I think personally for me, I need to do. Now, many different parent styles, everyone's entitled to do it their own way. My own childhood informed the kind of parenting I don't want and the kind of parenting I do want. Of course. And I and I think it is important to say that everybody does live life differently. Totally. Do they do a great job in different ways and different children need different things, you know. Um I mean, God forbid that anyone should feel judged. 
for their parenting. <laughs> no. We're all in it together, guys. I mean, we no are. matter which way. We are. Yeah. That's the truth. No matter what you do, yeah. you're going to get judged. There's, there's no, no um, way around it. How did your own childhood affect your perspective on parenting? I mean, wait. Um, I mean, I come from a household of where there was a divorce and it was messy and there was like a lot of step parents and, you know, um, living in different states and, you know, flying back and forth. You know, it was just like very uh, athletic. It was just a lot. A lot. Yeah. And I think um, I think I have a good sense of humor because of it. <laughs> so I'm kind of like, like right on. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like I have a good sense of self and um, am, am pretty like well adjusted with stuff, you know? How, like, is, how do you think that happened? I think because my mom is very nurturing and sweet and provided uh, a hearth of love even in the midst of chaos. Mm. Even if I didn't see her, you know, for beats of time, it was like when I saw her, it, you know, she, she represented like love and, oh, I hear you, I see you, I feel, you know, that must hurt. Safety, and, yeah. yeah. Safety Acknowledging and Acknowledgement, yeah. yeah. And I had a brother. Younger, um, younger or older? Older. And regardless of where our relationship is now, um, he was my everything. You know, I mean, we just were like, this you were shit in it together. is crazy. Right. We had so many inside jokes, our own language. Wow. We had um, multiple languages. We had like, a, we did op, you know, which mm-hmm. is like a kind of pig Latin, but then we also had kind of like a... A pig Latin's great. We just existed in a little you were raft. Teamed. Yeah, we were like on this raft that would go to all these different places and he was kind of naughtier than I was and I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to just keep my mouth shut. I don't want to get spanked, you know. And so that was my whole thing. I was like, I'm just going to fucking... Right. Right. slide through this and just like be the they seem to think I'm pretty cute because I'm like a little girl right, right. that's good right. and then I was like oh they're la- they laughed at that thing okay laughing works good 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 check you know it was just like it just started to kind of crystallize as we were the team and then everybody else was kind of kooky but my mom did provide like a beacon of and of course they'd be like we weren't kooky we were just going through real life stuff of course you were you know yes. what I mean their reality is like they're these like kids who just happened to have grown up right. and had kids and we're just like in their fucking movie right. you know but of course which I is under- which is the reality and you kind of get to a certain age where you realize that Oh, your parents, which who you held accountable for, like all of the f- most fucked up stuff about you, were also just people doing their best. Yeah, they're just like I mean, they're not good at certain things, right? Like, <laughs> you know? like, uh, like all of us. Yeah, exactly. Right? And I think that's why I think you can't have that perspective until you're a parent, you know, and you're no. looking at it in hindsight. But yes, I think that um, having that sibling was big for me because otherwise it would have been really scary without him. So how, if you had a, a strong relationship with your brother, how are your relationships with men? How, because I would imagine that coming from a divorced family and I too am from that, yeah. it caused epic trust issues for me, just like monumental and still still is a challenge for me. Um, but how were your trust issues coming from a divorced family? I used to turn Every guy I dated into a brother. Well, that's complicated, actually, because it is weird. Because no, because you don't want to be fucking your brother. Never. And, I never wanted to fuck anyone. But, I was just. But like, if you have that relationship with the man that you are in a sexual relationship with, very that confusing. can never turn out right. It never does. My dad was 
peripheral. So I, I didn't have him to kind of relate to. So then I would meet a guy that I like and I'd be, I usually gravitate to friend, like friend like mm-hmm. energy. And then of course I was like, well, I don't want to do yes, anything with you because totally. we're like bro vibes. Yeah. And they're also like, why are you turning me into a brother? You know what I'm saying? So then it would just always fizzle. I would I can imagine that that was a lot. lot of, there was a lot of relationships that you went through trying to break that one. How did you break that pattern? I think it was like, I was like very scrawny as a kid, whatever. I know it's like very like, um, um, sort of stereotypical to be like, I was really scrawny as a kid. And that, but I was, and it was just like knees and a nose. And it was just like basically elbows, knees and a nose. And then, um, when I was wet, I just looked like a drowned, like, gonzo. Anyway, the point is, then I did, you know, get fucking big-ass boobs, like, all of a sudden, and I was just, like, a thing that I didn't even realize. I was wearing, like, I was like, I have no fucking boobs, and I was wearing an A cup until some girl at boarding school was like, I don't, I, I'm, I don't think you're an A. <laughs> like, and I was just like, I looked down, I remember the moment, just being like, I got like boobs and a butt. And then right. I was putting out something different whether I liked it or not. Oh yeah, God, I remember that moment yeah. too when I was walking down the street in London wearing overalls and I remember builders on a building site saying, oh, look look at her tits, show us your tits. Yeah. And me being like, what? <laughs> like I couldn't get my head around the fact that I was being sexualized. It was one of the first times I think that I was sexualized. Right. Because I, I too grew these massive boobs, and like double like, Ds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, too, yeah. and suddenly I was like, people looked at me differently. I know. And it, like, I like what you said, whether you liked it or not, mm-hmm. you're suddenly thrust yep. into having to learn about sexuality without being ready for it necessarily. Oh, I was so not ready. I was like, yeah, I was so fucking not ready. If I could have been, I would have been ready at like 30. Yeah, like, I know. That would have been great to get boobs around like 28, 29, 30. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That would be great. I think I would have had a very different life if I didn't get boobs so I was 29 right? or 30. Oh my God. You would have... For it, real. Yeah. You would have just like taken it easy and then just... <laughs> and then, you know, once you knew what trauma. you were doing... A lot less trauma. No shit. God. I feel like, yeah, that was that was like the beginning of a, a change of like, oh man, I have to navigate this. Like, because I, I wasn't ready, obviously. When you're like, I mean, a lot of girls maybe are, but I super wasn't ready to do anything like sex or anything until I was like, I, th- I had sex at like 19. That was the first time you had sex? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I let, I fucking pull, held off. Why did you wait until terrified. 19? Right. I just was like, I didn't understand dudes in, in that a, context. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, ah, I don't know, trust issues. I yeah. was like, I don't fucking trust you. I mean, that sounds actually probably like the healthier way to go rather than forcing yourself <laughs> to, do, to it. do it before you really felt like, okay, I can just about handle this. You're right. I mean, even at 19, to be honest, I wasn't ready. Right. You know, I if it's like... You're if, like, okay, I'm 19, this is ridiculous. Just like, let's do yeah, this. And yeah, and I was with a boy that I trusted enough to, to like do that with. And he was like, all right, I'll fucking wait around for you. You know what I mean? Right. And like... And it was in England, actually, because I went an to English drama school. English boy. Yeah. You lost your virginity to an English boy. Yeah. So I, did I. I was at school. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> I, was a, I left uh, America at uh, 19, and then I was 19, 20, 21, 22. I was there. I was wow. There. I went to drama school there. What was the process like for you with learning to let the man who you're married to um, in 
you know, like, did you put him through the ringer with like trust I did trials? not because I did that with a lot of other people before I got okay. to him. So <laughs> I had some like really stupid, you know, kind of dysfunctional, um, I'm pretending to be somebody else in a relationship. I tried mm-hmm, that on yeah. um, where I like think I'm, I'm, I'll try on this person. Right. Well, I'm like, That's Oh, I can do this. Yeah, I can Let do this. Let me just be that forever. Yeah. Like, yeah. no, I'm sorry. Yeah. And then I did the one where you're like, oh, um, I'm going to do something kind of illicit and mm-hmm. then realize I'm 100% not that person. Right. You know, it's a lot of like trying on on costumes of different people, at least for me, and then being but also, like, but why al- are you not just being yourself? Right, but also that's a way to stay safe because if you don't, don't yes. bring yourself and it then, doesn't, doesn't work, then you've not risked anything. Correct. And I feel like then I had a relationship right before I met my husband where I finally experimented with being me. And that was awesome. I'm bringing Lake to the party. Yeah. And I was like with somebody that I really trusted and loved. They weren't the person for the long haul, but they were like the most um, profoundly like respectable and kind and like, I was like, wow, I'm de- I'm like in a real thing mm-hmm. where I can be kind. They can be kind to me. I can fucking accept it. They can accept it. Holy shit. Gave you an insight into what you yeah. could do. But also you matched up with someone who was willing to do it with you, right? Oh, yeah. Because I mean, that's one of the hardest things is finding yes. someone who's willing Unafraid to, to yeah, do that too. Yeah, because you've got two people who have got, you know, damage and, and restrictions and are just not, you know, and not willing to take that risk at that point. Some people get a lot of currency and feed off of the, you know, the bacteria of dysfunction. You know, it's the familiar Familiar. horrible, yeah, Mm -hmm. which I always found really interesting because I was in a cycle of familiar horrible for a while where I would be dating concepts and um, uh, textures that were like the relationship I had with my father, which a lot of girls do. You know, it's like that kind of like story of my life, like the kind of like you're far away, you're not available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. available. They kind of look around. They 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 don't look at you only. I used to do that, where it's like the one available motherfucker in the room is the one that I that did not want to talk to me, that did not was not interested in having a conversation with me. That was the one that I wanted to be with. I know. Why do girls do that? Oh, it's God. so weird. See, I, it is so bizarre, but it is understandable and it is a horrible pain. I mean, I'm with one person for a long time, but I don't think I would have that anymore if I wasn't in a relationship. No, I think that you do grow out of that. I think the good news is if someone was listening, they're like, I do that. Like, I just think that goes away. You do have to work about it. I mean, I definitely, I'm like a therapy girl. Like, I go to therapy. Yeah, I do too. And I love it. Yeah, I do too. I mean, I experience it myself all the time where, you know, I'm a female founder of a company. I'm, you know, I interview people. I've had my own television show for many years. I'm one of very few women who gets to do that. Um, but I, the restrictions at, that are in place are so monumental. Even with raising money for my company, the fact that female founders only get 2% of VC funding, the thing of... Every time we walk into a room, knowing that, um, you know, that what we're bringing, that those people are lucky to have our talent, our time, our ideas, as opposed to, I hope you like me. I hope you invest in me. And I, I still think that that is a huge part of our culture. 
maybe our kids will have their generation is a phenomenal generation. They give me hope. Gen Z just give me hope because they are growing up in a time where they know that their voice means something because they're used to growing up on social. They they see, they're exposed to the news and um, awful, you know, inequalities and horrendous things that are happening in the world, which is a lot for their little minds to deal with. Yeah. But they have more of a sense of, oh, they appreciate um, if they have any privilege they're more aware of it. They're, they're, they're aware of um, people who don't have it. I think that our kids' generation is in a much better place, but I still think the people-pleasing thing is has not gone, and I don't yeah, think it will go. I, I don't know that I would go either. Sorry, that was a major tirade I just went on. No, it was, <laughs> and I, I think I, I was interested in your comment about sort of you know, funding, you know, as a woman and because I am, you know, I consider myself a content generator and a producer of those things and director, obviously, and writer. But, like, I, I, you know, have been in a position where I feel like I have... Uh, had a favorable um, response in in trying to generate uh, funds for projects that I'm excited about. Now that said, because I'm on the board of Women in Film, and it is for years now, and I feel like, you know, women of color really do have it a lot harder in a very massive, very profound, like painful huge, way. Huge. So, so I do feel like a lot of our work in women in film, you know, is dedicated to not only just women of color, but also mid-career women, right? So say you've made a couple of movies, right? Well, a Cajun, lot of women get to make one film, but exactly, not a second. But not a second or not, but better yet, not a third. And that's interesting. And so that's something that we're always looking at because we're like, well, what's going on here? Because Well, same with funding, by the way. Women get seed funding, but they don't often get Series A and certainly not Series B. Well, exactly. And that means there's like some sort of like like ageist kind of, I don't know. It's like it's multifaceted. You know what I mean? It's like why, oh, we gave you a chance to make a movie already you're done now. You know what I mean? You right, got, that's you your got one to, opportunity. Yeah, you got yeah. to make, for me, I got to make two, you know? It's like, and I'm excited to make a third. Instead, I pivoted and wanted to be like, hmm, I'd like I'd like to know what it feels like to run a ship of a network uh, comedy because then I have a, a Are lot you of- show running too? I, so I executive produce, I direct the premieres and then I star in it and then I, um, uh, I write on it. I show run with Liz Merriweather. So Liz Merriweather is oh, yeah, she's wonderful. Is like do you know, she's the day-to-day in writing um scope and I'm on set day-to-day on uh EPing. So obviously I'm also starring in it, so I'm there, but I also serve as a creative um sort of uh um barometer guide. It's satisfying in a different way, and I had never done it before. So I was like, okay, if the goal is to kind of attack big obstacles, things that feel unsurmountable, that's interesting. You know, it's like, oh, what network comedy? I'd love to take like an independent filmmaking yeah. sensibility and bring it to yeah. everyone. Why not? Yeah, and you know, do you feel like the fact that you're able to be a part of? Not only the creative process with writing, but also obviously you're acting in it. But as an EP on top of it, I know for me on my show, the fact that I was involved in every single piece of it, it gave me way more control over the output 
ultimately. I mean, hundred <laughs> percent. I'm I'm a complete. Um, I don't like to say control freak because I'm just like a control. You I'm, care about the details. I just nothing care. wrong with that. It's not freakish. It's very. It's just yeah. I'm I'm very um, specific. And, By the way, yeah. every single person I know who is excellent at what they do, which you are, is very specific. And that's cool. I think the difference between good and great is the details. Yeah, and I feel like you can do it with great respect and love and and collaboration. I know it feels funny to say that, you know, to be specific and to be, you know, direct, uh, it doesn't feel collaborative, but it's extremely collaborative. I, I, I hire a team of people that I love and mm. then we together make, you know, have this sort of like creative family and create, I mean, that's part of what I love about making movies and TV. Jeez, it's like all fucking teamwork, you know, and we're all in it together. You get to laugh with people. You get to be like, oh God, you fail, you know, you, you pick up again and then figure shit out. I mean, holy shit. It's so fun. But what do you way. do when you have someone on your team who isn't being a team player or someone who you hired because you thought they had a certain skill set and they presented it as such and then you get to work and you realize, oh, this person doesn't have that skill set at all. Uh, you fired them. Right. Mm-hmm. And that is also part of being... <laughs> It yeah. sucks. It yeah. sucks. Have you had to do that? Yeah, but I don't like it at all. It makes me want to barf. Yeah. I hate it. I love giving people the chance to step up, like, and to you know, we have the conversation first. I let them know where the the limitations or where the weaknesses are lying right now, and then they have the opportunity to to rise up. Mm-hmm. That's a great. Oh my god, yeah, that's, that's the, the best, best part. Yeah. yeah, and then if they don't, then you fire them. Yeah, yeah. but like you know, with love and respect, you know, I'm not ruthless. And I feel like I do have a heart. I do think about people in terms of them having families. And maybe that's, that's a female, um, that's a female female leadership. Absolutely. Female leadership. Yeah. Yeah. I do go, Oh God, you know, I see that, but it doesn't mean I can keep you just because I feel bad. You know, I can't. That would not be, that would not be good leadership to be honest, because that would mean that your feelings are dictating, you know, very practical decisions that need to be made for the business. Yeah. So I want to talk a bit about mental health because let's make a, just a complete little pivot little pivot here because one of the things that I read when I was reading about you was that you said that there was a period of time where you took antidepressants mm-hmm. and that you, um, and I wanted to know if they helped you and I wanted to know if, uh, why you chose to make that public because I think there's a huge stigma around, st- unfortunately, and there should not be, around um, mental illness, but specifically around medication. And I think that is very damaging. And I wish people were more open and honest about what worked for them, even if it was for a period of time. So I I admired that you were honest about that. Yeah, thank you. I had a very traumatic birth thing of my uh, second child. You know, I had gone through life not understanding medication at all, not being on board. I would think of it as kind of like something to that's like the last resort as opposed to the first, you know. And so um, I didn't really understand it. My judgment came from being living a very sort of like holistic life and like very wellness centric. And, you know, I only take Advil if it's absolutely necessary. You know, I'm very, very low key with that shit. 
And um, and I, I, you know, it's the organic fucking kumbaya way of li- very new age, whatever. I get it. Yeah. And I mean, my best friend growing up, um, Kate and her family, you know, that's why I did two home births, you know, because now I would say to you, like everyone, I'm like, I'm not saying you have to do a home birth. I'm saying I chose to do home birth because I had my best friend growing up, had four kids at home. And it's what I knew. She started it's when what I was, you knew. It's just yeah. what I knew. And I thought, oh, I'm terrified of hospitals. I don't want to go to a hospital. So my second birth with Ozzy, um, he was 11 pounds. There were complications at home. And um, he, you know, needless to say, it was just, I mean, it just doesn't get worse. But he's okay now and everything's fine. But after his birth, when we were in the NICU for a number of days at Children's Hospital L.A., um, you know, they were saying things like, like he was there. We didn't know whether he would be alive or whether mm. he would walk or talk. And it was just a moment where, like, the only thing you could look at was like a tree swaying in the in the distance to kind of orient yourself. That that tree is a good constant to just look at, and then the sky behind it, which you know will be there tomorrow. You know what I mean? There's all these things. You're like at that level. And I was like, I need, um, I need, I need something. I can't, I can't, I can't be a person. I, I don't know how to be. I kept saying, I don't know how to be. Mm. And you, I had a little daughter too. Yeah. So I was like, I, I, I got to be a person <laughs> and I don't know how to find that, that the person oh, that, God. you know what I mean? Yes, I know what you mean. Yeah. And so I think um, I had never felt that before. And, you know, I feel terrible for, I, my heart aches for those who, feel that through their the hardship of their life like every day like i have felt it i know what it is and it's it's a monster you know it it's a, a demon and i remember my daughter saying at one point um i was lying in bed and it was nighttime and and i was just like swirling with darkness <laughs> and um you know by the way you also have like all the like all that, all those hormone crash, oh, yeah. everything yeah, right after, yeah. right? Oh my god! And you're just like you know, like all the women and all the like bitches who's having kids before they like they know exactly what we're talking about. It's very hard to know what that, what that, uh, like waterfall totally. of, of crashing totally. uh, hormones yes. is like without the feeling of oh, yes. my baby's in oh, my arms, my right? So it's Which very is the confusing to it. Yes. That's the antidote. That's built in. That's some yeah, nature shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you don't have the baby there and you, and it's in a dire, dire situation, then your body and your chemicals and your hormones are like discombobulated. And my daughter, it was nighttime and it was dark outside and she looked into the corner and she was little. She was two and a half. Um, and she said, she was sucking her thumb and she goes, go away, monster. You go away, and I was wow. like, I, 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 I was like, honey, what? Are you, are you okay? Is, is there a monster here? And she said, he's still here. Go away, monster. You can't play here. And I was like, <laughs> quiet, looking around, like, is there a fucking ghost here? And um, I was looking around, and this was the very room where you know my son was born and 
Um, I sat there, and then she said, he went away, and she put her thumb back in her mouth. And then, um, you know, as I sat there, and she sort of, like, fell asleep in my arm, I was like, I know what she's talking about. (laughs) She feels that I'm not normal mommy. She feels that there's, like, a fucking demon in the goddamn room, and she wants it to get the fuck away. Mm. It, it, It was a feeling of a little person being very intuitive to there being like a, a a cloud of darkness here. And she was like trying to get it away. And so in that moment and understanding and viscerally experiencing that, um, I took um, a medication called Zoloft, very low dose. Um, and this was, again, a person who was afraid of Advil and I begged for it. I begged for it. And I begged for it for my own well-being and for my family's well-being um, and so that I could produce milk. And I did. Wow. And my milk came and I was on extremely low dose. And yet it took me to a place where I could be. Hmm. I could just be. Medication doesn't make you happy. It just creates a tiny buffer for you to be able to think rationally. It was rational. I needed rational. I needed to just be lake. And I felt finally like I could breathe the air that Lake breathes, not like some other person that I don't recognize. And I was on Zoloft for a year, and then I tapered off. What have you done with your feelings about how your son's birth evolved? Because even though intellectually I can imagine that I would understand this is no fault of mine. As a mother, Mm. there is always a piece of us that that feels endlessly responsible. So what have you, how have you processed that and those feelings? I, that's a huge reason why I was on Zoloft was feeling guilt um, for not listening to my body, right? So like I had had a lot of cues that I was too big to birth at home that, but my caregiver, my doula midwife um, was not um, available to make that call. And I felt um, let down for sure. I mean, Nova was born and she was not breathing when she came out, but she was revived with three life-saving breaths on my chest. And it was the most miraculous incredible, profound thing I'd ever seen in my life. Um, You know, birth, death, life. Nothing more profound. Yeah. And so that, I think, gave me a big respect for the prowess and, um, you know, sort of um, abilities of a trained midwife. And I had a different midwife in L.A., and um, I had had cues emotionally, um, physically, that I could tell that the baby was a lot bigger. That oh, I had eleven yeah. pounds in there, and yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't get him out. And so he had the cord wrapped around his his neck, and his um, his uh, you know heart rate dropped. And so then it became, I have to get him out or he's not going to be with us. So then I ripped myself open to get him out. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I'm sure it'll be, I hope, fucking A, that is the hardest thing I'll ever deal with. But um, it, physically, at least. And um, 
and uh, you know he he was not with us when he came out, and we could not revive him. And so, the paramedics came um, in extremely short amount of time. But first, we did try to revive him. He was connected to me, so he had oxygen through the blood. But then he was hypoxic um, and without oxygen for over the amount of minutes. Then that is considered okay. And um, that is why he was in the NICU and was uh, put on a cold bed for 72 hours. So he was in an induced coma um, and intubated. And um, I looked at him and I was told that he, you know, uh, may have cerebral palsy or he could be totally fine. And those are, that is the framework that we're talking about. And um, so I went through that roller coaster of insanity for um, almost 12 days. Mm. And so he was, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, every day, you know, Scott sl- uh, slept there and I um, came in in the mornings um, uh, so I could be home with my daughter at night um, to sleep with her at night. And then... Um, and so that was that time when I decided to medicate and get through the day. When you're in a situation like that, it's like you almost like guilt and blame is so vain. Mm. <laughs> it's like, what, who fucking cares? Mm-hmm. I'm looking at the matter at hand. You know, it's like I, I need to figure out what the fuck is going to happen and how I can help and what I can do and how to move forward. Because that would be Zoloft and therapy that helped me. Because by the way, I was going through therapy religiously through that process. It wasn't just like taking a pill and not taking care no, of my it's actual... it's a combination. Yeah, yeah, you have to. Yeah, both. And by the way, thank you for sharing that story. I mean, I'm trying to honor Ozzy, I think, a little bit. And I also, because I feel like, you know what, that I, I don't, I, w- I wasn't ready to ever talk about it. And now I'm like, oh, look, if there's other women, because I did talk about it with Dax on his uh, podcast and I had a tremendous amount of... Um, pe- women saying thank you and kind of saying, hey, you know, uh, this happened to me or um, this, I'm pregnant and this is a really heavy story to listen to while you're pregnant, but thanks. And it it kind of gets, it, so- it sobers you up a little bit. And I give great credit and love and respect to any woman, no matter how you give birth. So, Everybody's got a story. There, you, you you ain't getting out of a story. There's no way that you can give birth and be like, it was easy. Well, I think that <laughs> we have talked about so yeah. much. Indeed, thank you. And thank you for showing up and thank you for being willing to share stories and talk about things that I think will be really helpful and really insightful to so many people. I hope so. I mean, I think, you know, as ladies and as parents, I I will include men in that for sure because I have a husband who's a badass dad. So do I. Yeah, and like I think parents, you know, we're in it. We really are in it together and especially if you work hard too and you have, um, you know, you are trying to, contribute to all of the things that are important to you in the world, whether that's, you know, your health, your family, your career, and what you contribute to just the world at large. Those can be all be priorities, and it just means <laughs> there's no answer to the balance thing, you know, which we all talk about. I think it's just, we just, you do your best. and some I look at will. it like the, that, uh, the whack-a-mole 
toy that the kids have where, you know, you hit one thing and another thing pops up. Oh. It's like you there is you can't have everything in, in equilibrium. There are things that you have to prioritize and then you mm-hmm. have to go back and reprioritize the things you put on the back burner. It's just moving stuff around, right? Yeah. And listening to your intuition and paying attention and going, oh, that thing's on fire. Or before that catches on fire... I need to move that up to a priority. Yeah. It's yeah. just moving shit around. Yeah. You know? It's like I always think about I'm like, I'm globally a good mom. So every right. day I'm a good mom. Right. But some days I'm a great mom. Right. And some and days sometimes I'm a good I, mom. And some, but sometimes I'm not a great mom and I'm and I'm okay. That's okay, because globally right. <laughs> you're a good mom. Yes. All right, I'm gonna go about my day with this. <laughs> Thank you, Link. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. for having me. If you have any ideas for me of guests that you want me to interview or indeed questions that you might have for certain guests that you know I'm interviewing, you can now share that information with me directly into my iPhone, 917-708-8499. I would love to hear from all of you. I make this for you. I want it to be something that you enjoy and people that you want to hear from. So text me. The Conversation with Amanda Decadene is a Spotify original podcast, executive produced by me, Amanda Decadene. From Spotify, our executive producers are Natalie Tuller and Erica Clark. Our production partner is Neon Hum, which includes the team of Jonathan Hirsch, Catherine St. Louis, Joanna Clay, and Marissa Schneiderman. And while I've got your attention, please listen to all episodes of The Conversation with Amanda Decadene on Spotify for free.